Welcome back to A Time of Monsters, a podcast about our descent into barbarism and the radical left struggle against it. I'm Aaron. Today, our guest is Matt Crispin, co-host of Chapo Trap House. The American Civil War is either remembered in the South as the War of Northern Aggression or as a war of emancipation and national unity in the North. But the truth lies between materialist struggles of race and class, of rapidly expanding industrialization and wage labor, and the death throes of chattel slavery. As protests against police brutality and systemic racism ignite across the country and the world, discussions of what it means to be black and white in America have ignored just how foundational this bloody conflict was in crystallizing a racial and economic caste system. In today's episode, Matt and I attempt to demystify the commonly understood narrative of the Civil War and its materialist underpinnings. We don't come to any definitive conclusions about race and class, but I think you'll find our conversation insightful, especially at a time when identity politics are being weaponized in service of the status quo. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash adampod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates. All right, here's Matt Christman. Enjoy. All right, man. So first of all, the Civil War, as it's kind of understood, is, you know, in the South here where I live, it's tend to be taught as the War of Northern Aggression. In the North, it's seen as a moral kind of battle, right? Um, which it obviously didn't start out that way, but it ended up like that. And, and there's a lot of regionalism um, with regards to the Civil War and its history, the way that it's told. I mean, you have states that fly Confederate flags like, you know, Kentucky or, you know, states out in the Pacific Northwest or as far up as, you know, New York even that weren't slave states, right? And I guess the best place to start is what were the competing class interests at the beginning of the Civil War leading up to it? The the class conflict in the Civil War was or that led to the Civil War was was complicated because it wasn't necessarily a situation where there was a genuine conflict between modes of production. Southern slave agriculture was the, the raw material basis for northern you know production uh and so like it, it worked in that respect uh but it, it also created competing political and social cultures that created conflicts it, like intra class conflicts so like uh within the ruling class you had uh a big conflict over something like tariffs and these were planters in the south versus industrialists in the north correct Exactly. Yeah. The North Northern industrialists were interested in, in maintaining a protective tariff so that domestic industry could thrive, which, by the way, is a necessary precondition for uh, industrial development anywhere. England did it. Every Western country did it. And of course, one of the big jokes of post-colonial uh, development is that one of the rules that the IMF and the Washington consensus put, brought down is that countries Developing countries aren't allowed to do that. They're not allowed to put up protective cameras or try to create domestic industry. But that's the only way you do that. It's the only way it works. Yeah. Uh, but since the Southern plantation economy was like the beginning of the cycle, uh, they didn't really have a lot. Of, they, and then they could sell to England. That's the important thing. Like, it's not like they had to, out of their own interest, 
sells exclusively to uh, northern industry if the cost of that was more expensive imports. Exactly. Uh, and so that was a genuine like conflict. And, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, can change the viability of one system over the other. It becomes like a leverage point. Uh, but, you know, as always, all of those schisms are created at the foundational level by the existence of slavery. Yeah. So so even within so besides the ruling class, though, right, you did have you had poor whites, especially a lot of poor white ethnics who are coming from Europe, newly arrived immigrants. Um, and they were competing um, against uh, slave labor, black slave labor. Right. And there was a movement even um, or I guess two counter movements, uh, the free soil movement and the abolitionist movement. And what, what were what were some of the contradictory or competing interests with those two movements and the classes of, of slave labor and, uh, you know, free white labor? What what was that dynamic like? Well, uh, the free soil, the free soil ideology that, that kind of percolated in, resi- in in resistance to the rise of like the slave power as, as influential in Washington and as, as it looked more and more like slave influence is going to dictate like the 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 shape of labor in the coming you know uh, settled United States that movement was at the base level among like working class urbanites and but more frequently among yeoman farmers like smallholders uh the normal nor- northern yeomanry their hostility to slavery was based on a fear of having to compete with slave labor uh, even if not in their lives but maybe if they wanted or their family to the West, like the destiny of the country, would, would their destiny be eternal competition with slavery, which would eventually see them turn to slaves themselves uh, or freedom? And of course, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, all no, abolish slave labor completely. Now, of course, as a result of that, there was no particular racial uh, moral op- opposition to slavery undergirding it. So uh, the, the, the free soil ideology was also explicitly racist in the sense that it opposed slavery and the extension of slavery to new territory, because that would mean bringing black people to those territories. In which and, they had to compete with. Exactly. The abolitionist movement was much more concentrated in the emerging middle and merchant upper class or uh, middle class. And those were people who were not in any sense in competition with any potential slave labor. And they, their opposition to slavery was more grounded in a moral abhorrence. And so that was always a point of conflict between the two types of anti-slavery feeling in the North. Because where you were coming from largely determined your position towards the black people in this country, which is why there were a lot of uh, schemes put about as ways to square that circle. And the most popular one was the, the colonial movement, the idea of, of, re- of, of sending freed slaves back to Africa. That would solve the equation on both ends. It would end the moral or the moral stain of slavery would be clean from the country. Country, but also there would not have to be a, a worry about integrating this group of people into like a, a, a hostile white majority. Yeah, I, I thought that when I was going through Black Reconstruction and I, w- I want to read like a little quote here, too. But I'll mention this about the uh, colonial kind of movement sending uh, blacks back to Africa. That kind of blew my mind to find out that that's something Lincoln actually supported. Yeah. Right. Like just these this idea of, well, 
if slavery is abolished, the black can't exist, won't be yeah. able to live, yeah. right? Just survive in America. So the best thing to do yeah. is to send them back. And that was actually a popular movement. And I honestly think that it, like in the, in the pre-war context, when slavery seemed immovable, when the real question was even, wasn't even about slavery per se, it was slavery's extension into new territory. Uh, in that context, with the horizons of the moment, I totally believe, understand why Lincoln was into uh, uh, the colonial movement or the, the colonialism as a solution. Because it was the middle, it's the it was the middle tack, right? That's the compromise. It's reaching across the aisle, right? <laughs> it was always compromising. And the thing is, like everyone does that it's politics. The question is, how do you respond to the moment? And that's why like Lincoln had that progression over the course of the war on the question of like how radical they were gonna be. And by the end of the war, he was he was certainly not where like the radical Republicans were, but he was tending and tracking in that direction pretty much inexorably because the uh, aperture of possibilities kept changing. Like, oh, we went from a question of whether there's going to be, you know, another slave state added from, you know, northern Mexico in 10 years and it's going to disrupt Senate to we're marching through the fucking south and burning plantations. That changes the reality. But in that pre-war context, how do you how do you get a mass of like white people who you need to be on board for anti-slavery when they have this social phobia of, of black people? Uh, you say, well, you can't say the most awful, like the 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 the, the free soil ideal removed of any uh, morality, which is like extermination or subjugation outside of slavery. Right. Uh, that's the only that's the only answer, because you can't just have people as a, you know, living amongst but not into, they would have to be separated through some sort of mechanism of coercion and violence. But you can't you don't take the abolitionist assumption that you can have equality and, uh, you know, harmony between the races, considering how racist white people are. So you remove them out of the, the moral horror of having to be oppressed in America, but not at the expense of the comfort of uh, the white people who you need to get to your side. And, and I think I think that point, right, is uh, this was shocking to me, too, to read in Black Reconstruction um, about labor activists and even Marxists, right, who had come from Europe and were actually free soilers. And I want to read a quote from Black Reconstruction. Uh, this is from George Evans, one of the Evans brothers who came as labor, uh, labor agitators in 1825. And he said, quote, I was formerly like yourself, sir, a very warm advocate of the abolition of slavery. This was before I saw that there was white slavery. Since I saw this, I have materially changed my views as to the means of abolishing Negro slavery. I mean, there are there are a couple quotes, I mean, from actual like Marxists, like, you know, um, or people who knew Mark, Karl Marx personally, who were not on the side of abolition because they felt that to throw in competition with uh, newly freed blacks would be so, I guess, um, anarchist, right? It would just upset the order so much and deprive the white man that it was something that they couldn't even contemplate, even if it was in their best interest to do so. I think the idea is that without any realistic solution to the social question of, of, of bringing blacks to equality with whites after abolishing slavery, then all you have done in practice, according to this line of thinking, is to bring competition into the market. And so that the self-conscious working class, which is going to be the European descended working class, because that's who you're dealing with. That's that's the assumption of, you know, where your basis for anything else is subsidiary or different, like because they would they would not see them as a working class. I mean, freed slaves had, that would not have thought to have like the uh, class consciousness of, of, a, of a European descended worker because they're coming almost directly from feudal 
feudalism or like pre-feudalism uh, as opposed to having like been worked through the the process of uh, capital acceleration in the 19th century in Europe the way that uh, white working class people would be. Uh, and I think that that's what they were thinking, maybe. But I think the thing that they missed and that a lot of other 48ers and, 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 and Marx disciples got is that you're assuming that you could get to that situation from a fixed point, as in you could get to abolishing slavery and not also change the relationship between white and black Americans in the process of ending slavery. It's all one fight and you cannot pick one. You're mooring, you're, you're unmooring yourself from the flow of history. You're not reckoning with the way that all dynamics change with time. And you're saying we're, we're only moving towards this goal, but the, moving towards that goal has by definition an effect yeah, of changing yeah. the relationship. But because how else will you get to a point of slavery being something worth fighting for or like making a direct confrontation with slave, with the slave power? Mm-hmm. Over? Yeah. I think, and I think too, what's, what's sad and, Du Bois kind of laments about this is that if the free soil movement and the abolition movement were to kind of unite, then that might have been the beginning of an actual social democratic, multiracial democracy, economic democracy in the United States. Um, And we'll get to that later about like why there's no labor party in the U.S. with the Civil War being sort of part of that history. But how did the Civil War end up starting then? Right. What what was the fever pitch, I guess, that led to this conflict? Well, I mean, most of all, I think what the thing that drove northern hostility to slavery was southern intransigence because the North really didn't, for the most part, northerners were fine for decades at just letting them have their thing. We don't want it. But because, you know, there's a racial distinction here that we all recognize as a thing in our heads, we don't we're not horrified by it. Most of us anyway, to the degree that we feel like we have to stop it. But for the South, the calculus was different. They could not maintain an equilibrium because the maintenance of slavery necessitated the extension of slavery to maintain markets for slave as chattel in addition to as work output as a saleable good. If it doesn't have value as a saleable good, the, the economy of slavery is not sustainable. It will collapse. I mean, by the Civil War, most tobacco plantations of like Northern Virginia had mostly given away to being essentially breeding facilities. Most money in, 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 in the Northern like Piedmont areas of, of where there were slavery started on the colonies. By the war, they were mostly selling slaves downriver to the big cotton plantations in Louisiana or in Alabama and Mississippi. But that also was going to be an inevitable process of overproduction at one end. It needed then to be moved on. And so while the North would have been happy to keep that stasis almost inevitably until like a level of like social sophistication had reached the point where slavery would have been rendered horrible morally, which would have happened eventually. But it, but it was certainly not having a noticeable effect. What was having a noticeable effect was the Southern desperate need to continue expanding, which was seen over time more and more as a threat, as a direct economic, like a competing economic system attempting to overawe and dominate the American economic system. Yeah. Yeah. And and what, what I think interesting, too, I mean, we talked about the colonialism movement, but also this idea that if the South continued to exist, they were thinking about expanding into the Caribbean. Yeah. Re- reopening the slave trade. Right. And span, expanding into the Caribbean and um, South America, Latin America. So I guess what I find interesting with the Civil War um, with regards to the slaves is that. Du Bois has a chapter called The General Strike, right? And when I, before I even read the chapter, I just like saw the title and I was like, oh shit, man, this is like the the strike the way I think of it, right? Like as a socialist, as a communist, right? Right, right. But he's actually talking about slaves 
withdrawing their labor by running away and running to Union armies to eventually become sort of an auxiliary force and then actually soldiers in the Union army. Can you talk a little bit about that that idea of a general strike, especially because it's something that a lot of people want to flow around this idea of one online and it just seems kind of different from the way Du Bois means it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think what Du Bois' main motivation there is the laudable and necessary corrective from the historic notion that slaves had no part in their own liberation, that they did not contribute. And as like a subject population, as workers in a mode of production the way that they were, I mean, it's not even a question of it being wrong to say that morally. It just is nonsensical. So he he contextualizes what during the war, what was the what was the reaction of slaves as a class to the coming of this final conflict? And it was to through mass action coordinated, like at the level of like a plantation at a a workplace, like like a factory floor. Almost they would uh, withdraw labor, run away uh, or reduce their amount of labor they were putting in if they stayed uh, and, and, you know, joining the union lines and eventually joining the union. Army. And that's an incredibly important part of what brought down the Confederacy because, you know, the Confederacy, it obviously started at a massive disadvantage and it, it probably, barring European intervention, was doomed. But its death depended on how long its lifeblood basically was able to keep pumping through its its body. And the, the, the coordinated action of striking slaves vastly accelerated that. The, the desanguination. Yeah, well, I mean, in the North, you had men who had to leave factories, right? So these were nodes of production, you know, for armaments and whatnot. They had to leave factories to go and fight, whereas the South, they had the surplus population, which could continue to, you know, tend to the plantation and feed soldiers and whatnot. And I guess it's a necessity at first where Lincoln decides that, OK, we're going to free the slaves because it's a military decision, right? But then it sort of evolves and he takes advantage of Europe's sort of horror. I don't know if I'm saying this right, but there's sort of just complete disgust towards slavery. And this allows the union to put forward a moral case for abolition. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of switch to like, this is the actual right thing to do besides any idea of preserving national unity or uh, preventing any economic competition? One of the big drivers one of the big things that accelerated the the expansion of the union war aim away from preserving the union itself to ending slavery was the need to combat European recognition of the Confederacy because there was strong preference in the two biggest countries in in Europe, uh, uh, the two superpowers, France and England. There was uh, both both rulers, Napoleon III in France and uh, and Lord Palmerston's government in in the UK. They wanted to see the Confederacy recognized. The American behemoth broken up, changing the the power dynamic there to create like more le- more possibilities for like you know trilateral diplomatic relationships and encirclements and stuff. Uh, just less power, more p- chance to do influence, and also the fact that the South had something they very very much wanted, which was cotton. Mm-hmm. Their growing industrial machinery. It was really the actual mill workers of Northern England who who manned the, the looms that that spun the Southern cotton, who more than any single force prevented the British, who were the ones who were basically making the decision. Napoleon III was not was essentially uh, waiting for the British to do something. He wasn't going to act on his own. So it was up to them. And one of the big things that prevented them from recognizing the Confederacy was the knowledge and the, the continued demonstration of uh, the working class people who were actually being materially uh, harmed by the war by reducing the amount of cotton that could be processed, uh, insisting that there be no recognition of the Confederacy. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, the fact that there were workers, I mean, I guess that gave me a little bit of hope, right? Uh, especially as someone who strongly desires like global, you know, proletariat solidarity. The fact that there were workers in England who understood where they existed in a chain of exploitation. One of the reasons that that connection never happened between the free soil movement, you know, the sort of uh, racist uh, anti-slavery sentiments and, you know, more moralized, you know, solidarity based um, abolitionism is because it was so class divided that there were very few spokesmen who uh, could uh, conceive of like the whole question of competing, you know, uh, with a different labor force. Could not transcend that argument to talk about the need to, you know, create a universal working class that would then be able to deny, you know, exploiters any opportunity to bid down our labor because, you know, we are one thing. And then that's because there weren't that many working class abolitionists. It was like mostly a parlor thing for well-heeled men of letters and ministers and stuff. Not the Quakers. Yeah. Well, well, before we jump on kind of reconstruction, right? And that's something that um, I, I'm pretty much not going to really have anything to say. And I'm just going to ask you questions because even though I'm reading Black Reconstruction, I have not gotten to the actual chapter he talks about reconstruction. But before we before we get to that, though, man. Let's talk about something that's kind of been uh, on my mind, especially with these, you know, police protests and the the nature of police and the genealogy of the institution of law enforcement. I would just read a kind of a quote from Du Bois where he talks about poor whites and their role in upholding slavery. Well, this is, I guess, sort of a rising middle class. So these aren't poor whites, really. But these are the overseers. Right. Writes, they constituted the police patrol who could ride with planters and now and then exercise unlimited force upon recalcitrant or runaway slaves. And then, too, there was always a chance that they themselves might also become planters by saving money, by investment, by the power of good luck. And the only heaven that attracted them was the life of the great southern planter. Talk a little bit about um, slave patrols and that sort of state sanctioned violence that prevented interracial class solidarity. Uh, yeah, I mean, the slave patrol, uh, one of its chief principles was to prevent uh, slaves from having any kind of or from having unsupervised uh, interaction with whites of any kind. So that like the relationship between, you know, any white population and the slave population was uh, was limited and, and kept at a uh, like an official capacity to prevent, you know, the, any kind of fellow feeling from developing and preventing people from from acknowledging like a common humanity. Mm. Hmm. Okay. So, so let's move on to uh, reconstruction then, man. Um, what, and I guess I'm just going to ask this genuine questions. Why did reconstruction fail? Like what I I've heard or seen sort of intuited from this book that reconstruction was one of the greatest times, I guess, in American history where there was some actual material move towards economic egalitarianism between the races. I mean, you saw the most like, you know, black representatives elected like in that time, why did it fail? What fell apart with Reconstruction? I think that the root issue was that the U.S. decided for a number of reasons, and we can talk about those, uh, that it was going, it, it, it needed to, or that it was advantageous to maintain the basic structure of the Southern economy with a different maybe cast of ownership. Not even that different. You know, a lot of, a huge chunk of the late planter aristocracy kept their, their plantations, amazingly enough, after the war. But 
there was also a huge infusion of northern capital into southern agriculture. And the kind of agriculture that the South uh, engaged in, the kind of mass, you know, large plantation cash crop agriculture necessitated an essentially a rural proletariat. Whereas the, the, the hope of reconstruction, if we had had it, would have been at, like uh, as Sherman ordered, 40 acres and a mule, but not just for the former slaves, for poor whites as well. Because while the Civil War was happening, the Republican Party carried off like the signal piece of land reform in American history, the Homestead Act, doing that every American would have realistic access to a a family reproducing level of of like rural reproduction, potential prosperity, like a, a chance at having the Jeffersonian dream. If that had been extended to the South, I think you could have had the basis for like an enduring multiracial like political settlement that could then like express this relationship. But as it stood, while all of the the really productive, useful things that happened during Reconstruction, like there was a lot of progress made in a very short amount of time. Public schools, I just want to add, right? Wasn't it also the creation of public schools? A lot of these southern states got their first significant public goods of any kind during Reconstruction because the productive model that they lived under was essentially feudalism, where all surplus was hoarded at the personal level of like the family as opposed to distributed through any kind of state mechanism as it was already happening in the North. So a lot of these places had no public infrastructure at all. And it was literally created through reconstruction. Uh, and it saw like huge explosions in literacy. And even though uh, there was nothing like justice given economically to people who had been like laboring their entire life for no recompense, you still saw the early emergence of like a black middle class and a uh, prosperous black land ownership class. But uh, it was in the context of a reproletization of rural labor by both races, like smallholding whites and blacks being forced into a rural competition for subsistence uh, in this new economy where the new model for uh, the replaced slavery was sharecropping, which is essentially instead of being directly owned, you are essentially leasing yourself to an owner of land and and, and uh, agricultural capital. Well, it's feudalism. That's what it sounds that's, that's that, like. If yeah. that had been replaced by the kind of yeoman smallholding, like you cut off, you stake out this land and you can grow it. Hell, we'll give you some, the tools. You, you earn that at the very fucking least, but also distribute that to whites as well. So that they felt a benefit to this new order, as opposed to the experience, which was very common in the South of everything. Everything got worse when the blacks were allowed out of slavery. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was a race to the bottom. Right. Exactly. And what it would have required, first and foremost, was a total decapitation of the Southern planter class. Not necessarily literally, although I wouldn't have minded that. <laughs> like like a, a, a absolute expropriation of all property and ideally like deportation. Yeah, yeah. Man, I I guess like I want to do this episode with you because there the discourse like online and offline about race and class is just like fucking terrible, right? Oh, it's-, it's really fucking bad, man. Um, we we now y'all are hearing this for the first time. We're gonna have the definitive take on race and class. No, I'm kidding. But yo, man, how how should people? How should modern day socialists, right? How should we view and lefties? How should we view race and class? What's your opinion on that? Oh, boy. Uh, I like I've been called a class reductionist. And, I know. <laughs> Trust me. I, <laughs> and I think that like depending on how you define that, I guess it's true. In the sense that I do think that like the thing that's driving these dynamics, the things that are driving these like reinforcing racial disparities. Right. Because that's what it boils down to. Disparities of experience of being an American. 
And I think the thing that drives that is is a material relationship. I do think that that's true. I think that it was where it had its foundation. And I think that's where it has its continuing uh, uh, reaffirmation. And that there is no level of uh, like social engagement that will fix that dynamic. It will just reproduce itself. It'll be like mowing the lawn. Uh, but at the same time, though, it does not suffice to just say, well, pe- well, that's no, no. We need to just explain that to people. And if they don't get it, well, then they're like, then fuck them or something. Yeah, they're lost cause, right? They're their ID Paul or their their Trojan horses or whatever, and just assume bad faith. I mean, that's that's everyone's big failing. I think it's this this constant bad faith paranoia about anyone who disagrees with you. Uh, but so you can, because that's the lived experience of, of of class is race in this country. Like mm. Class consciousness is, has been attenuated out of American life to the point that it is almost non-existent. Like people do not think in terms of their class. All of those things have been mystified out of it. The commodity fetish has, 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 has lobotomized us. Like everything is a market relationship and we don't even realize that that's coercion behind that and that there's a class character to it. We don't know what that means. Some of us, you know, think we do and we try to explain it, but it is not in any way something that is felt at the synaptic level, the way that race is in this country, which means it has to be engaged in those terms. Exactly. Meet, meet people where they're at. Yeah, right. That's exactly. what I always say to people. Yeah. Um, there's this quote, man. I, I, this is the first time I ever heard this quote. Cause uh, I, I went on the trail billies like a, a month or so ago. And uh, Terrence told me this quote, man, that has been stuck in my head the whole entire time um, from Stuart Hall. And he says, quote, uh, race is the modality in which classes live. Right. Yeah. Right. And I always found that sort of fascinating. And even today, like last night, I'm, I was kind of pondering on that. And to me, it seems the foundation of, of capitalism as we know it was proliferated through racialization. But you can even see this, you know, among like, quote, white people. Right. Like the Irish, the German. Right. Weren't considered white when they first came to, you know, emigrate to this country. And it, it seems that class and race are these two inseparable, inextricable things that are in dialectical relation with one another. And maybe the left's problem is that where either people are either thinking class reductionist or either that black people don't understand class issues and you only have to approach them with issues of race, right? Whether it's police brutality, whether it's like living in the hood where it's like, well, those things are also a function of class. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think, I think some of the discourse is just sort of people who, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know what it is. Right. Because this isn't even a definitive take and it's, it's, it's hard to organize Right. Yeah. When, when you're at I mean, one of the big, the chief problems here, I think, are the things that are attention. And I think that one of the reasons it's so frustrating is because these things are attention and every and uh, because of the, the, the way that uh, discourse flattens things out, people end up arguing one or the other and not recognizing that that can't work. That one or the other can't work. And the two things I think are sort of cross purposes is that there is this like lived experience of, of class in America for black people in the form of like racial awareness, like race is a r- racial disparity is like a defining feature of your daily life that you're conscious of. Stay sanctioned violence as well. Exactly. Which means that that needs to be engaged with in order to make for any kind of working class movement. But at the same time, that effort to, you know, contextualize and direct the the anger related to those like racialized injustices has to connect to a broader working class movement that has to see for itself, like people within it, a, a reason for their themselves to participate. 
And a part of the problem is that a lot of the people who insist on like centering race in order to do what we're talking about that has to be done want to also center like racial pain and racial grievance as like a separate and maybe even a higher form of alienation. It's oppression Olympics, man. It's oppression Olympics. Exactly. Is what the fuck and, and, and then and like the emphasis on notions like privilege and like the need for whites to recognize privilege. And I think that has a deleterious effect on trying to reach out to similarly exploited, similarly positioned, similarly aggrieved white working class people who can understandably hear that and think, I do not feel particularly privileged. So that's a real conflict. And the thing is, you can't pick one or the other. And it feels like a lot of people would rather just have the, the the satisfaction of like, having a, a strong like Manichaean argument to have yeah. say one or the other, but it's just a, because if you drop, it's like the dog with the uh, stick in his mouth and he looks down at the water and he sees the reflection and he goes for the stick <laughs> and the fucking stick drops out. That's what you do by trying one of these. You will, you, you, you repel the other and then you end up being an ineffective organization that does not have the cross uh, racial character that is necessary for any kind of critical mass of solidarity to be achieved. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I agree with that, man. I agree with that. So, man, I, I listen to your and I recommend people check out your uh, History of a Weapon episode with uh, Sean KB from the Antifada, where you guys talk about why there's no Labor Party in the U.S., right? I think that the failure of Reconstruction kind of points to a reason why. But can you can just kind of like along sort of the narrative that we're going along, right? If we're talking about race and class in the Civil War, um, what? why is there no Labor Party in the U.S.? Uh, well, I think one of the I mean, just uh one of the one of the things that made it impo- almost impossible for America to gain a labor party is the fact that we gained a party system before we had a working class. Mm. This is always this is always framed in like comparison to other Western countries and in other Western countries in Europe specifically, and even in like uh, other settler colonies uh, like Australia, the class ferment associated with industrialization reached such a pitch that political concessions in the form of universal suffrage were granted in the 1880s and 1890s. And the consequence of that is that the first modern political parties were born and they were born along self-conscious class lines. I mean, sometimes you had religious based parties like the center party in Germany, but they were there was like farmers party, junker party, middle class party. And there was worker party. And by numbers, they were becoming the biggest party as Marx predicted would eventually occur. But in America, our party system, the modern party system was created in the 1830s Mm. when the American working class came into its own, which took longer in the first place because of, you know, the continued pressure valve of Western expansion, taking people who would have been brought into industrial uh, relationships and the wage relationship much earlier if they were your, if they'd stayed in Europe. One of the reasons they came to the U.S. was to avoid having that happen. Exactly. They were able to yeah. postpone it for a much longer time. So you had a delayed like formation of a self-conscious working class. And then when it did emerge, uh, it could only really negotiate an entrance as a coalition member of an existing political party, in this case, the Democrats. Uh, and so that's one big thing that does it. But the another big one is is the perpetual uh, existence of race as a underminer of any kind of effective application of class power that could have transcended, you know, the the things pushing against it, including the the sort of the suffocating cooperation with the Democrats. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to end off on something that might be a little bit more obscure and maybe metaphysical Ooh. and maybe a little bit. Yeah, man, I've been thinking about, about the term like libidinal economy. Ah, yes. And I uh, personally, man, when I see videos of, uh, you know, black folk getting shot and shit, I don't like watching it. I don't, I don't watch it personally. I don't need to, but it seems that that has purchased 
in this racial libidinal economy. And I'm getting really like kind of abstract here, I guess, but it seems to me that there's this ritualistic need to see black people being shot and killed. I mean, we already know that disproportionate to their population, of course, black people are killed by the cops, you know, more than white folk, but white folk, because they're a larger percent of the population are just killed by police more, but we don't see you know, videos often of white folk being, you know, killed and shot by the police. Yeah. What what the fuck is it with America, man, where there's this desire, maybe white America, right, where there's this desire, you think, to see this kind of shit, man. What sort of, I guess, like spectacle of violence, like what, what how does that factor in into like just the discourse now and, you know, resistance to defunding the police and, and all of this? I honestly don't know. I mean, the, there is definitely a libidinal element to it. And I think part of it is like a, like a violent voyeurism. I think part of it is a lot of people feel very, very powerless. Mm. And they feel like innately powerless against that, oh, things that they see around them. But also they do feel a sense of hor- moral horror at them. Mm. And when you're in that position, especially if you're relatively comfortable, as a lot of these people are, then the only way to expiate that sensation, since you cannot conceive of or would be it would be against your general interests to pursue, you know, a, an ameliorative policy is to cleanse yourself through some self-inflicted suffering. Self-flagellation, right? Self-flagellation, exactly. And that kind of purifies that sense of, of guilt that's accumulating at witnessing things being not right, but not feeling like you're in a position to change them in any way. I feel like this kind of stuff is like a reinscribed sort of a ritualized flagellation to stand in for the action that we don't know how to take. I mean, I know you don't have the answers, man. I mean, that this whole like pod wasn't for the answers this episode, but just sort of like, what do you what do you think about the sincerity of uh, white folks who are uh, supportive of you know the BLM movement? Where do you, where do you see this maybe even turning out like beyond um, the election, right? Because I, I have a very have a very strong mind that if Joe Biden's elected, we're going to see a crackdown on these protests that Trump has not even just because based on his incompetence. Mm-hmm. Right. We just have not seen yet. Right. What do you what do you think this is going with the participation of like white liberals? I mean, I would not. I think you will see probably some cracking down. But honestly, I would not I would not be surprised if you did not see a huge crackdown when Biden gets in for the simple reason that protests will subside because I kind of think that if Trump gets out, there's going to be a period. I don't know how long and it might be very short of just a general sigh, like just like a oh, like that, that constant because like having Trump as president, a guy who intentionally because, yes, obviously we live in conditions that are determined by our material relationships. And like if our lives get worse, it's because our conditions are getting worse. But while that's happening at the cultural level, there's this guy who's just winding up an air raid siren. <laughs> on purpose. It's not even a dog whistle anymore. <laughs> He's rattling the cage with a fucking stick on purpose every fucking five minutes. Whereas Biden would not be doing that. Mm. And that could help contribute to just wanting to perpetuate just a brief exhale. Now, of course, I would say the next time that there is another police killing in that context, and, I, and it would be inevitable, of course, <laughs> like every week, <laughs> you would likely see another uptick. But I I think you will see it first. I would not be surprised anyway if you saw it first, like just a general lull as a specter of this man who's just been screaming in every way. We've all been living in his head for four years. Exactly. Exactly. And we'll be living in his head for like a long time to come, man. Oh, God, no. The echoes will, will go on into eternity. And I, I guess last 
thing, man, just uh, kind of add on this is that I, I kind of occupy this weird space where I think people think I'm supposed to be like a black nationalist or like a class reductionist where it's like, and we talked about this earlier, the relationship between race and class. But I feel what you're saying in sort of this lull in any movement, because I think Kamala Harris and the weaponization of identity politics, right? And people who are not connecting identity to any sort of material basis is sort of harmful, right? I think that's what like folks on the left that like, like Bernie, especially like black folks like myself, I was telling people like, dude, I don't care if he's like an old Jewish dude, man. Like, I don't give a shit. Like he has the right ideas, right? Like he could be a fucking alien, you know? Yeah. yeah. yeah and I mean, we saw, you know, just like horrible shit from left lib saying shit like white men shouldn't be able to write black and brown characters. And it's just like, bro, every time you say that shit, like a fascist somewhere smiles, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's amazing. And like, <laughs> the only people right now, honestly, because like, the yes, the right is super racist, of course, but like in their formal arguments, they're materialist, you they're, they're explicitly trying to create like a civic nationalism. Like they, they recognize the reality of demographics and they're like, there's always like at least one black guy or like some Asian dudes in a proud boy group. <laughs> I mean, Trump should not be as popular as he is among Latinos and blacks compared to like his statements. If he's as absorbed as racist the way that liberals do, it's like, no, that civic nationalism thing, it has an appeal, especially if people think things are only going to get exactly. worse. Whereas liberals are the ones who are doing one drop race science <laughs> where they're putting three and meaning people into like a being biologically determined to have certain characteristics and views, right? And like, you know, it be like suspended in like a gravity field and all in polarity with one another in constant tension. And the tension is supposed to be good. It's like no person in the right mind, especially if they're materially hurting, wants to live in that hell world all the time. Oh, they would crack <laughs> a goddamn beer. And if that means they have to build a wall, then that's fine. Yeah. But I always say, man, that actually like right wingers are better materialists than like libs. You know what I mean? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they at least like because they're, they're able to see certain things that are really true and accept they're true because they think they're good. Yeah. But liberal, because it goes against their self-conception of their virtue. They just can't see it. They cannot see the reality in front of them. And so they can't operate from it. Which is why, like, the, the liberals now are fucked because one of the reasons that Biden looks like he's treading water isn't just that he's a decrepit old man. It's that they do not know how to talk to people who aren't them, yeah. who don't have their priors already built in. That's why they always want to argue about why you shouldn't vote for Biden out of obligation. Yeah. That's why they vote for Biden. And they think, well, that's to you, too. It's like, no, motherfucker, I'm not on your team. Nah, like, I'll, I'll, like, I have everything to lose, but I can back the fuck out and let it burn. You know what I mean? Like what they have, the delusion that they have that Republicans don't is that Democrats are going to be better on any of this stuff in any meaningful way. And if you don't have that assumption, then there is no moral requirement to vote for Democrats. You have to delude yourself into exactly. that. But what that means is you can't talk to anybody else. And so all the arguments are about, like, it's your moral duty. It's like, yeah, because you're a liberal and you see politics as a performance of morality. Yeah. Exactly. You've decided that it has no connection to material conditions and anybody's like betterment in life. No, it's just your virtue. Exactly. But just for you, no one else accepts that. And that means you can't talk. You are. They're all just talking to each other. And they're basically just hoping that enough people are like cowed by the conventional wisdom that they generate, that they just go along with it. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like the moralizing. Right. And like the, the, to kind of direct it back to race, it really is also a moralization of racism. Right. It's this idea that like racism is just sort of an individual thing and that if we can have like you know enough diversity training and if we can like tell people what to think the right way that like people won't be like racist and it's like nah motherfucker that's that's not actually the way that people think you it's like oh wouldn't you want to be less racist it's like 
well, I already have to have these ideas in my head as like discrete categories and like racism as a sine qua non for being a bad person. You have to absorb that at some level. A lot of people do it in college. But if the real reason that you're told not to be racist is because you'll get fired if you are, I mean, that's not the change of uh, heart that these people seek. It's just a resentful submission to a corporate mandate, which you're going to take out on people wherever you can, like maybe by voting for Trump. Exactly, exactly. Well, Matt, shit, man. This was this was fucking tight, dude. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun. I think we cracked it. I think we've solved the issue of race and class on the left. I love it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yo, man, I mean, I know people already fucking know you, dude, but where, where can people find you and shit, man? Chapo Trap House, baby. Hell yeah. Internet. Hell yeah, dude.